Okay, that's a good start. Good morning, folks. For those of you who are wondering who this strange person is with this strange face is up at the front, um, my name is Mark Welsh, and I officially joined this congregation last May, so roughly about three months ago. Um, let that be a warning <coughs> to anybody who thinks they're, or who is thinking of joining. Um, Christoph is very good at roping you in very quickly to, to particular roles, such as standing at the front and delivering the sermon. The two songs that we've just sung were picked very deliberately, they weren't done randomly. That sense of the seed you sow, it's God's word being sown into our lives, requiring that the, the roots go deep in order that we might grow and bear the fruit that God wants us to bear. Likewise, speak, O Lord. Speak as we come to you. I wonder how often on a Sunday morning we come in because this is just what we do and perhaps we've been hassled because the kids have been giving us jip at home and, and our minds are everywhere and there's not that sense of expectancy that God will actually speak to us and, and enter in to where we are in our lives at this moment in time. As we come to look at the next of the series in Praying with Paul, let's just take a moment of quiet. Now that the children have left, the parents can maybe calm that a little bit. And let's pray that God would indeed sow seeds in our lives today. And that he would speak to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have freedom to open it. That we have freedom to discuss it. And that we have freedom to put what it says into play in our lives. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness, though, because so often your word simply remains as head knowledge for us. And Lord, we pray that today you would indeed sow seeds. Seeds that would put down roots, seeds that would bear fruit. That you would speak to us through your word, that we might indeed be able to stand in your promises and walk as people of faith. That we simply wouldn't have heard another sermon by the time we leave here this morning, but that we would have heard you speak to us. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to put two words up on the screen. And for those of you who are of a certain age and remember the, the game show Blankety Blank, all you've got to very do, do very simply is, is put in the final word. And, and the first two words are knowledge is blank. Now, I, I know a, a number of you, I trust, are going to feel fairly smug in, in the next couple of moments. And if that's you, let me remind you that pride is a sin. Um, but if you've come up with that as your answer, knowledge is power, then at least we're in the same wavelength. If you were feeling smug and you'd come up with knowledge is power, I wonder if you'll feel just as smug if I ask you who said it or wrote it in the first place. It's generally attributed to this guy, Francis Bacon, back in the late 1500s. Although probably actually Francis Bacon didn't write it. He wrote something very similar to it. But those words were taken in the years that followed and, and, and have been changed slightly. I'll, I'll come back to what Francis Bacon actually said in a moment or two. But that phrase, knowledge is power, has been taken by some very prominent politicians, some very prominent leaders, and have used it to promote a particular campaign or a particular lifestyle. And so the former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan came up with the following. Knowledge is power. Information is liberating. 
education is the premise of progress in every society, in every family. Knowledge, information is liberating. It brings freedom. Nelson Mandela, education, knowledge is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. Knowledge is power. Knowledge brings freedom. Knowledge can bring about transformation if it is used and applied correctly. JFK, in a time of turbulence and change, it is more true than ever that knowledge is power. When the world seems to be turning upside down, when there are all sorts of contrasting and conflicting views about the way ahead, the knowledge is power. Knowledge brings power. Knowledge brings freedom. Knowledge brings transformation. Knowledge gives stability and if used wisely allows us to discern the right way through the turmoil that JFK was facing as part of the Cold War but also that we face today and you just need to think of the news that we've seen beamed into our homes over these last few weeks. What direction is the world going? What do we view as Christians, or how do we view those various stories that we've heard? Going back to Francis Bacon, though, Francis Bacon, if we were actually to take his phrase correctly, and, and the correct phrase was written there in Latin, I have to say I'm not a Latin scholar, so I have no idea really what it means, but I thought I'd look flash and put it up. But those who, who, who do know these things tell us that actually that phrase that he used was actually from a little book that he wrote, or a, an essay that he wrote, entitled Sacred Meditations. It wasn't written in some abstract essay, but it was written very specifically on his reflections on God. And actually, and used in the correct context, Francis Bacon was saying, knowledge is his power. It all comes back to God. If we want to have freedom... If we want to know transformation in our own lives and in the lives of communities and in the lives of the world, if we want to know freedom, if we want to know everything that God wants us to know about this world that he's created and about his purposes and about his character, then it's got to come back to him. It's interesting then that those phrases that folks have come up with actually probably appeared for the first time Not in Francis Bacon's writings, but in God's writings. Proverbs 24 verse 5. A wise man has great power. A man of knowledge increases strength. Again in the New Testament. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Because then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. If we want to be transformed, if we want to be transformers, if we want to see others see no freedom, if we want others to experience what we have experienced of Christ, then our knowledge of him has got to grow also. Why do I say all of that? What's, what's that got to do with Paul's letters? And in particular in this series, Paul's prayers. Paul, over a period of time, wrote quite a few letters. Some of those letters were very personal to individuals to Titus, to Philemon. 
Some of those were to churches very specifically to address an issue that was going on in that particular congregation. Others, such as the one that we're going to look at today, to the church in Colossae, were written in order that they could actually be shared. Specifically though, this particular church in Colossae, which is in in modern day Turkey, was addressed to the church. Not a church as we would have today, but a church that met in Philemon's house, the same Philemon that that very personal letter was then later on written to. And it was written, as the postcode there tells us, around AD 60-ish. Some of Paul's letters... Some of Paul's letters were almost like postcards, giving a bit of a snapshot. Some of them were written almost on perfumed paper, very personal, very intimate. This particular letter is one of those letters that comes at the end of a school year in a brown envelope, normally addressed to the parents of dot, dot, dot in the name of a child. Because this particular letter wasn't written by Paul to a church that he knew intimately. This letter is a little bit more like an end of year headmaster's report. Paul knows of this church. He didn't actually establish the church. He hadn't been to visit them. But he knows of them from those who have been their teachers. And because he knows of them. And he's read their reports and he's listened to what is going on. He's now as the headmaster, the overseer, is saying, here's what I've heard about you. And here are a few encouragements as you finish this year and as you start into the next year. And so it's with that view in mind that I encourage you now to pick up God's word from in front of you. To turn to Colossians chapter 1, found on page 1182, and we're going to read verses 1 through to 15, or 1 through to 14 actually. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, page 1182. This is the word of God. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth. The gospel that has come to you. All over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. And understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras. Our dear fellow servant who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And who also told us of your love in the spirit. For this reason. Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness 
and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. I've already said that a number of the letters that Paul wrote were written to very specific churches to deal with very specific issues that were going on inside those congregations. As we go through this particular letter, and and again, I'm very conscious we've only just read the first part of it, and if you were reading a letter at home, you'd never just sit and read the first part. Let me encourage you when you go home, read the whole lot. It's one letter, it's short. But in chapter 4, giving a little bit of the context, Paul says to the church at Colossae, to those who will be reading this out in front of the, the, the gathered congregation, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Now, we don't have the equivalent letter because they were encouraged also to read the church, or the letter that went to the church at Laodicea. But this is a letter that wasn't for one specific church. It was a letter that was addressed to a number of churches in the area, and therefore it was addressing issues that were quite general. And the issues that the churches were dealing with at that particular time were, first of all, issues of pluralism. Well, there's that. Basically, a number of different people were saying, okay, there's God, we're happy with that. But there are a number of different ways to get to God. And my way's really no better or any worse than your way, and your way's no better or any worse than my way. Sure, we're all going to end up in the same place anyway. The other issue that they were dealing with was one called syncretism, where folks weren't just saying, well, look, there's, there's, there's this path or there's this path, take whichever one you want. People were saying, actually, well, I like this bit of this particular pathway. I'll follow that bit. But I also really like the, this bit of the pathway from this other faith and this other way of doing things. Actually, if I take those two things and merge them together, then actually I can create my own little religion that, that, that just keeps me happy. And then we think of the world around us today. And we think, gosh, has much changed in 2,000 years? If Christianity is good for you, that's great, but I'm going to follow. Sure, we'll all end up in the same place. Actually, I like what, I like what Buddha has to say. Actually, there's something in Islam. If I take a wee bit of that, a wee bit of that, then I can create this religious utopia. That's the world out there. That's the issue that Paul was addressing and saying to the church, do not get dragged into this. He says in Colossians 2, I tell you these things or I tell you this. Why? So that you might not be deceived by fine sounding arguments. Those who say, it's okay if you follow this and this and this. Paul's saying there is one way forward and you've got to know it. You've got to understand it. And you've got to apply it. See to it that no one takes you captive. He says, this is serious, guys. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle. A battle for hearts and minds and souls. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. It depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Paul says this knowledge of God is vital. This knowledge of what he says of who he is cannot and should not be underestimated and should not be poo-pooed and taken lightly. Before we get into it a little bit more, let me take a step backwards. 
and put up what I'm going to call a learning cycle. Before I went into the ministry, I, I was a teacher just around the corner in, in Strathern. And the hardest bit for me here this morning is that I've actually got at least one former pupil sitting in front of me. I taught biology then, I'm not now teaching theology, there's quite a difference. But the learning cycle is the same. We need to, whenever we're being educated, whenever we're learning, whenever we're growing in our knowledge, it's not, a, it's not a linear pattern that I learn something and I learn the facts and I get the head knowledge and, and, then, I, and then I apply it and then that's it all over. Once you understand something and apply it, you then actually go back to the beginning because in most subjects, as soon as you think you understand it, actually you realize there's a lot more to it and there's more you've got to learn, there's more you've got to know. And so you keep going around this cycle. And so the topic that you covered in first form, you come back to again at GCSE, and you come back to it again at A-level, in increasing levels of complexity. And if you're a real keeny binny, you then take it through to university and whatever. But in terms of what we might call secular education, we understand and, and, and we are well used to that circle of learning or that cycle of learning. One of the issues in the church though, and something that I've discovered over, over a number of years of pastoral ministry and parish ministry, is that Christians too often see their learning as something that is linear. They say it has a starting point. I've learned and I've understood that God sent his son to die for me. And because I've offered myself to him, and I've got forgiveness for my sins, then, in theological speak, I have been justified. God has declared me to be perfect, just as if I'd never sinned. And we spend the rest of our lives looking forward to when Christ returns. And he goes, I have been justified. One day when Christ returns, I'm going to be glorified. When everything is made perfect. What we don't focus on is the bit in between. I am being, no term there, sanctified. I am being made more perfect. I have been declared perfect. One day I will actually be perfect. In the meantime, God is making me increasingly perfect. Molding me more and more into his likeness. And how does he do that? By taking us round and round and round that learning cycle of getting to know him. Of putting that into practice, of getting to know him more, of putting that into practice, of getting to know that more, of putting him into practice. Too often, I have to say, it broke my heart. I, I, I was a minister in a, in a rural area. Too often, I sat in homes where folks said to me, Do you know I was saved in a tent meeting back in 1956? And you go, That's brilliant. Tell me about your faith now. I was saved in a tent meeting back in 1956. What would your story be? I'll come back to that. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, begins as he does regularly, says, I'm thankful. I give thanks to God when I pray for you. Why? Now, I've rejigged these slightly to fit with the learning cycle. But if you that first section of Paul's letter, these are all in here. Why? 
Because you've heard. You've heard about the word of truth. You've not only heard it, verse 6, but you've understood it. And I give thanks for that. I give thanks that you heard it and you understood it because there was somebody there to teach it to you. You learned it from Epaphras, that faithful minister of Christ. Verse 7. Having heard it, having learned it, you've then taken that and you've moved it from your head and you've moved it into your heart. And instead of just having this knowledge of Christ, you have a hope. A hope that is springing up because of your knowledge of what's stored up for you in heaven. And because you've taken it from your head and moved it to your heart, because you've heard and learned and understood, you're now applying it. And other people can see that it's transforming your lives. Education brings transformation. Knowledge brings transformation. We have heard of your faith. You're putting your faith in Christ. It's working itself out through the love that you have, not just for yourself and not just for the Lord, but for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And all over this world, people just like you are doing the same thing, and this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it is in you as a church and as individuals. So Paul says... When I look at this learning cycle, I want to give thanks because you have heard of the good news of the gospel. You have imbibed the good news of the gospel. You have stepped forward in faith and applied that good news of the gospel. And it's bearing fruit. But that's not the end of it. He said, you have gone round that cycle once. But now, and here's Paul's prayer. We keep praying. We keep praying, verse 9, that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the prayer that we're focusing on this morning. That Paul, having said, look, you have been round this cycle once, that's great. Now I want you to go round it again. And he doesn't just say, and now I'm praying that you go round it again. He says, I keep on praying. So I'm praying that you go round it. And then when you've gone round it, you go round it again. And then when you've gone round it a second time, you go round it a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time, and a sixth time. Until such time as Christ calls you home or he returns. This morning's not the time to go into what that looks like in particular in terms of the church at Colossae. Again, though, I would encourage you to read through the rest of the letter. Paul does say to them, look, I want you to hear, I want you to learn, I want you to understand that actually it's not a case of any road will do or any God will do. Christ is supreme. He says, in terms of your assurance of hope, it's because you've been rescued and forgiven. There's your stability in the midst of a crazy world. He says, you've an inheritance, something to look forward to, a hope in a world that is hopeless. You have freedom, freedom in a world that continually t- tries to constrain and oppress. He says, as you live that faith out, here's what it will look like. Here's what it will look like in the workplace. Here's what it will look like at home. 
Here's what it will look like in your dealings with the people that you rub shoulders with outside of the church environment. And having grown in that knowledge, he says, and I want you to apply it. We pray this. We pray that you would grow in knowledge. We pray that you would grow in spiritual wisdom. We pray that you would grow in spiritual understanding in order that you might lead or live a life worthy of the Lord and would please him in every way. It's one of those sentences that you just skate across. Yeah, want to live a life worthy of the Lord. Please him in every way. Actually, when you reflect on that, it's impossible. Because we're imperfect beings. How can we ever live a life life worthy of the Lord? How how can we please him in every way? Because as soon as we get up in the morning, it's not going to be long before we do something that displeases him. And that actually brings shame upon him. And it's why Paul needs to pray this. He says, because having declared you as perfect, knowing that one day you will be perfect, in the meantime, I know you're not perfect, but I want you to become more and more and more perfect. That, in many respects, is the test. The end of a school year, at the end of a two-year exam period, pupils are examined, pupils are tested and assessed on what they know, what they don't know, what they understand, what they don't understand. Paul's saying, here's the assessment. I'm praying that you grow in knowledge, and I will know that you have if you're bearing fruit in every good work. I will know that you're growing in spiritual understanding and wisdom if, and there's the, here's the start of the next cycle, if you're actually growing in knowledge of God. I'll know that you're growing in your knowledge. If you're being strengthened with a power that comes not from yourself, but a power that comes from God. A power that will allow you to sustain yourself and to endure all sorts of difficulties, as Paul talks about to the church. And I'll know that you're growing in knowledge if you're able to joyfully give thanks to your Father. Again, despite whatever circumstances you might find yourself in. We've got to grow in our knowledge. We've got to hear stuff. We've got to experience stuff. We've got to learn it. We've got to understand it. And we've got to apply it. That's the gist of what Paul was praying for the church at Colossae. Imagine though... There was more than one envelope sent out in that mailing. Imagine, instead of the envelope reading the church Philemon's house, Colossae AD 60-ish, there was also one to be sent from Paul to Kirkpatrick Memorial PC 259 Upper Newton Arge Road, Belfast, BT43JF, franked July 2014. And I was to open this. If this was your children's address, I'd have a big envelope. Inside the envelope, a bit of paper 
with every single one of your names on it or a separate paper for each person. Individually, handwritten. I wonder what it would say. Where on that learning cycle might Paul say you are? Would he, as he did with the church at Colossae, be giving thanks? Would he be saying, like, I thank God because you have heard and you have seen this stuff. I thank God because you, you haven't just heard it and let it go whoosh over the top of your head and by the time you've made it to the front door you've forgotten it. But you've learned it, you've taken it on board. I give thanks because actually you've understood it. Some of it was hard stuff. You know, that series in Romans that you covered, boy, did you have to grapple with it. But you've got there. I thank God that you've understood it. But most of all, I thank God that you're applying it and actually people outside of the church see it in action. Think of the tests. Think of the assessments. Are you... Bearing more fruit this year compared to last year. The joy of an end of year report is that actually you should be able to read back over the reports over the past few years and say, actually, do you know there's been an improvement? There's been a change in the amount of stuff this person knows, but also in terms of of how they're putting it into practice. You should see a growth. You should see a maturity. The summertime is perfect for us as Christians to look back and say, actually in July, or compared to July 2013, what am I like now? Would Paul, my form tutor, or my headmaster, be saying, well done, you've had a really good year. You've been learning consistently. You're bearing fruit. Your life actually is now more loving, joyful, patient, kind, gentle, humble, exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit, well done. Or, when you go home at lunchtime and you sit down perhaps with your kids and they say, Mommy, Daddy, you know, actually since this time last year you're a heck of a lot more grumpy. What would your report say? Are you bearing more fruit in terms of the fruit of the Spirit developing in your lives? Are you bearing more fruit in terms of good works? Because of the relationship that we have with God, working that out in practice, the service that we give within this congregation and outside of this congregation in in God's name, are you bearing more fruit? Lisa earlier when she was talking of prayer was very honest and said that so often when she prays the prayers are revolving around her children and family stuff. As we pray for ourselves that we would move around that learning circle. As we pray, God, would you fill me with more knowledge? As you fill me with more understanding? As you help me to put that into practice in my life? We also need to pray for the teachers. We need to pray 
for the guy on the right, for Christoph. How many of us pray before we come out to church on a Sunday morning for the person who's going to be preaching? I don't know if my name appeared in any list somewhere, but for most of you, I'm an unknown quantity. Boy, should you have been praying this morning. But do we pray for Christoph when he's preaching? Do we pray for him early in the week, not just on the Sunday morning, as he's preparing, as he's grappling with the text, as he's trying to work out what is the message that God wants me to bring from this section of his word? Do we pray for Sam as he enters his second year of his internship? Do we pray and will we pray for Richard as he begins as a student assistant? Praying that they would grow in knowledge and understanding and wisdom in order that they can then share that with us so that we too may be able to grow. Paul needed those prayers. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and he said, look, I've been given this commission by God to present to you the word of God in its fullness, not just to pick out the easy bits, but to give you the whole lot, the hard bits and the difficult bits as well. But I can't do it in my own strength. I need you, I need you to be praying for me. Chapter 4, there's a verse. They pray for me that I may preach this clearly. Let's pray for our ministers. Let's pray for our staff. But also let's pray <clears throat> excuse me, for one another. Because the role of teaching in the church is not entirely the responsibility of the minister. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, let the word of God dwell in you richly. So imbibe it, learn it, understand it, apply it as you teach one another. The pastor, the minister, the clergyman does not have the sole responsibility for teaching in the church. Various members here will have different roles to play in teaching others. And we've got to pray for them. Do we pray for our families? Do we pray for the mums and dads in this congregation whose primary responsibility it is to open up God's word with their children and, so, and, and who need to be those who model what it is to lead and live Christian lives in the home? As parents, how have we done in that circle? Have we been a more spiritual parent? Are we seeking to be a more spiritual parent? Where are you now compared to where you were last year? How have you moved on in that circle? Do we pray for our children's ministry leaders? Whether it's GB officers, whether it's the folks who go out on a Sunday morning, whether it's the folks who are part of our holiday Bible club that's coming up. Are we praying for those who will be teaching, that they will teach and share God's word in its entirety, faithfully? That they will have an understanding of what God is saying so that they can share it with others. Do we pray for our youth ministry leaders? As they help our young people who are grappling with living in a society where they are faced probably more than most of us are with the issues of pluralism and syncretism. 
Because what they see in TV and what they hear from their friends and what they hear in church are all very different things. And we need to be helping them to, to live out their Christian faith in the midst of that and not to keep little separate bubbles or compartments. It's a Sunday, therefore I'm putting on my Christian bubble and I'll say the right things and I'll do the right things. But during the rest of the week I'm living in this other world. Do we pray for those who lead our discipleship groups? Do we pray for those who are in the discipleship groups with us? As discipleship groups, how do you view those? Now, I've only been in one for a short time this year, so this, what I'm saying is not a reflection on that group because I don't know the group well enough. But again, in terms of my experience over the years with discipleship groups, they can be places of great fellowship, but they're not necessarily always places of great learning. And yet the whole essence of discipleship is that we listen to what God is saying and then we go out and we put it into practice, supported by the people that we're walking with. If you're not in a discipleship group, where are you getting that feeling from? Where are you getting that learning from other than a Sunday? In our discipleship groups, will we be happy with what I would call the Sunday school answer to some of the questions that's put out? You know what I mean by a Sunday school answer? It doesn't matter what the question is, the answers are either Jesus or God. If we're still giving Jesus God type answers, and in theory we should have been around that circle a few times by now, then there's something that's gone seriously wrong. And so we need to ask of ourselves, why are we not going around that circle? We need to ask within our groups, why are we not helping each other go around that circle? Why are we not holding each other accountable? Why are we not assessing each other? Why are we not encouraging each other and saying, do you know, I'm seeing more fruit in your life. Gosh, I never understood that before. Thank you for sharing that with me. Where are you? On the circle. Where are we as a church? Paul's prayer, Christoph's prayer, my prayer is very simply that as God's people, we would hear, we would learn, we would understand, and we would apply those things that God is telling us about Him, His character, His purposes his plans, the transformation that he wants to bring in our lives and the transformation that he wants to work through us in the lives of the people and the communities that he's placed us in. He wants us to hear, learn, understand and apply the freedom that he is offering to us and the people of this community. My prayer, very simply as Paul's, May God fill each one of you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Amen.